Case 5, Camp of the Dog, Part 4, of John Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Silence by Algernon Blackwood. Case 5, Camp of the Dog, Part 4. It was two nights after this conversation that I woke out of a deep sleep and heard sounds of screaming. The voice was really horrible, breaking the peace and silence with its shrill clamor. In less than ten seconds I was half-dressed and out of my tent. The screaming had stopped abruptly, but I knew the general direction and ran as fast as the darkness would allow over to the woman's quarters, and on getting close I heard sounds of suppressed weeping. It was Joan's voice. And just as I came up I saw Mrs. Maloney, marvelously attired, fumbling with a lantern. Other voices became audible in the same moment behind me, and Timothy Maloney arrived, breathless, less than half-dressed, and carrying another lantern that had gone out on the way from being banged against a tree. Dawn was just breaking, and a chill wind blew in from the sea. Heavy black clouds drove low overhead. The scene of confusion might be better imagined than described. Questions and frightened voices filled the air against this background of suppressed weeping. Briefly, Joan's silk tent had been torn, and the girl was in a state bordering upon hysterics. Somewhat reassured by our noisy presence, however, for she was plucky at heart, she pulled herself together and tried to explain what had happened, and her broken words, told there on the edge of night and morning upon this wild island ridge, were oddly thrilling and distressingly convincing. "'Something touched me and I woke,' she said simply, but in a voice still hushed and broken with the terror of it. Something pushed against the tent. I felt it through the canvas. There was the same sniffing and scratching as before, and I felt the tent give a little, as when wind shakes it. I heard breathing, very loud, very heavy breathing, and then came a sudden great tearing blow, and the canvas ripped open close to my face. She had instantly dashed out through the open flap and screamed at the top of her voice, thinking the creature had actually got into the tent but nothing was visible, she declared, and she heard not the faintest sound of an animal making off under cover of the darkness. The brief account seemed to exercise a paralyzing effect upon all of us as we listened to it. I can see the disheveled group to this day, the wind blowing in the women's hair, and Maloney craning his head forward to listen, and his wife, open-mouthed and gasping, leaning against the pine tree. Come over to the stockade and we'll get the fire going, I said. That's the first thing for we were all shaking with the cold in our scanty garments. And at that moment Sangri arrived, wrapped in a blanket and carrying his gun. He was still drunken with sleep. The dog again, Maloney explained briefly, forestalling his questions. Ben at Jones' tent. Torn it by gad this time. It's time we did something. He went on mumbling confusedly to himself. Sangri gripped his gun and looked about swiftly in the darkness. I saw his eyes aflame in the glare of the flickering lanterns. He made a movement as though to start out and hunt, and kill. Then his glance fell on the girl crouching on the ground, her face hidden in her hands, and there leaped into his features an expression of savage anger that transformed them. He could have faced a dozen lions with a walking stick at that moment, and again I liked him for the strength of his anger, his self-control, and his hopeless devotion but I stopped him going off on a blind and useless charge. Come and help me start the fire, Sangri, I said. 
anxious also to relieve the girl of our presence, and a few minutes later the ashes, still glowing from the night's fire, had kindled the fresh wood, and there was a blaze that warmed us well while it also lit up the surrounding trees within a radius of twenty yards. I heard nothing, he whispered. What in the world do you think it is? It surely can't be only a dog. We'll find that out later, I said, as the others came up to the grateful warmth. The first thing is to make as big a fire as we can. Joan was calmer now, and her mother had put on some warmer and less miraculous garments. And while they stood talking in low voices, Maloney and I slipped off to examine the tent. There was little enough to see, but that little was unmistakable. Some animal had scratched up the ground at the head of the tent, and with a great blow of a powerful paw, a paw clearly provided with good claws, had struck the silk and torn it open. There was a hole large enough to pass a fist and arm through. It can't be far away, Maloney said excitedly. We'll organize a hunt at once, this very minute. We hurried back to the fire, Maloney talking boisterously about his proposed hunt. There's nothing like prompt action to dispel alarm, he whispered in my ear, and then turned to the rest of us. We'll hunt the island from end to end at once, he said with excitement. That's what we'll do. The beast can't be far away. And the bosun's maiden Joan must come too, because they can't be left alone. Hubbard, you take the right shore, and you, Sangree, the left, and I'll go in the middle with the women. In this way we can stretch clean across the ridge, and nothing bigger than a rabbit can possibly escape us. He was extraordinarily excited, I thought. Anything affecting Joan, of course, stirred him prodigiously. Get your guns, and we'll start the drive at once, he cried. He lit another lantern, and handed one each to his wife and Joan, and while I ran to fetch my gun, I heard him singing to himself with the excitement of it all. Meanwhile, the dawn had come on quickly. It made the flickering lanterns look pale. The wind, too, was rising, and I heard the trees moaning overhead, and the waves breaking with increasing clamor on the shore. In the lagoon, the boat dipped and splashed, and the sparks from the fire were carried aloft in a stream and scattered far and wide. We made our way to the extreme end of the island, measured our distances carefully, and then began to advance. None of us spoke. Sangri and I, with cocked guns, watched the shorelines, and all within easy touch and speaking distance. It was a slow and blundering drive, and there were many false alarms. But after the best part of an hour, we stood on the farther end, having made the complete tour, and without putting up so much as a squirrel. Certainly there was no living creature on that island but ourselves. I know what it is, cried Maloney, looking out over the dim expanse of gray sea, and speaking with the air of a man making a discovery. It's a dog from one of the farms on the larger islands. He pointed seawards where the archipelago thickened, and it's escaped and turned wild. Our fires and voices attracted it, and it's probably half-starved as well as savage, poor brute. No one said anything in reply, and he began to sing again very low to himself. The point where we stood, a huddled, shivering group, faced the wider channels that led to the open sea in Finland. The gray dawn had broken in earnest at last, and we could see the racing waves with their angry crests of white. The surrounding islands showed up as dark masses in the distance, and in the east, almost as Maloney spoke, the sun came up with a rush in a stormy and magnificent sky of red and gold. Against this splashed and gorgeous background, black clouds, shaped like fantastic and legendary animals, filed past swiftly in a tearing stream, and to this day 
I have only to close my eyes to see again that vivid and hurrying procession in the air. All about us, the pines made black splashes against the sky. It was an angry sunrise. Rain, indeed, had already begun to fall in big drops. We turned, as by a common instinct, and without speech made our way back slowly to the stockade. Maloney, humming snatches of his songs, Sangri in front with his gun, prepared to shoot at a moment's notice, and the women floundering in the rear with myself and the extinguished lanterns. Yet it was only a dog. Really, it was most singular when one came to reflect soberly upon it all. Events, say the occultists, have souls, or at least that agglomerate life due to the emotions and thoughts of all concerned in them, so that cities and even whole countries have great astral shapes which may become visible to the eye of vision. And certainly here, the soul of this drive, this vain, blundering, futile drive, stood somewhere between ourselves and laughed. All of us heard that laugh, and all of us tried hard to smother the sound, or at least to ignore it. Everyone talked at once, loudly, and with exaggerated decision, obviously trying to say something plausible against heavy odds, striving to explain naturally that an animal might so easily conceal itself from us, or swim away before we had time to light upon its trail. For we all spoke of that trail as though it really existed, and we had more to go upon than the mere marks of paws about the tents of Joan and the Canadian. Indeed, but for these, and the torn tent, I think it would, of course, have been possible to ignore the existence of this beast intruder altogether. And it was here, under this angry dawn, as we stood in the shelter of the stockade from the pouring rain, weary yet so strangely excited. It was here, out of this confusion of voices and explanations, that, very stealthily, the ghost of something horrible slipped in and stood among us. It made all our explanations seem childish and untrue. The false relation was instantly exposed. Eyes exchanged quick, anxious glances, questioning, expressive of dismay. There was a sense of wonder, of poignant distress and of trepidation. Alarm stood waiting at our elbows. We shivered. Then suddenly, as we looked into each other's faces, came the long, unwelcome pause in which this new arrival established itself in our hearts. And without further speech or attempt at explanation, Maloney moved off abruptly to mix the porridge for an early breakfast, Sangri to clean the fish, myself to chop wood and tend the fire, Joan and her mother to change their wet garments, and most significant of all, to prepare her mother's tents for its future complement of two. Each went to his duty, but hurriedly, awkwardly, silently, and this new arrival, this shape of terror and distress, stalked viewless by the side of each. If only I could have traced that dog, I think was the thought in the minds of all. But in camp, where everyone realizes how important the individual contribution is to the comfort and well-being of all, the mind speedily recovers tone and pulls itself together. During the day, a day of heavy and ceaseless rain, we kept more or less to our tents, and though there were signs of mysterious conferences between the three members of the Maloney family, I think that most of us slept a good deal and stayed alone with his thoughts. Certainly I did, because when Maloney came to say that his wife invited us all to a special tea in her tent, he had to shake me awake before I realized that he was there at all. And by supper time we were more or less even-minded again, and almost jolly. I only noticed that there was an undercurrent of what is best described as jumpiness. 
and that the merest snapping of a twig or plop of a fish in the lagoon was sufficient to make us start and look over our shoulders. Pauses were rare in our talk, and the fire was never for one instant allowed to get low. The wind and rain had ceased, but the dripping of the branches still kept up an excellent imitation of a downpour. In particular, Maloney was vigilant and alert, telling us a series of tales in which the wholesome humorous element was especially strong. He lingered, too, behind with me after Sangria had gone to bed, and while I mixed myself a glass of hot Swedish punch, he did a thing I have never known him to do before. He mixed one for himself, and then asked me to light him over to his tent. We said nothing on the way, but I felt that he was glad of my companionship. I returned alone to the stockade, and for a long time after that kept the fire blazing and sat up smoking and thinking. I hardly knew why, but sleep was far from me for one thing, and for another an idea was taking form in my mind that required the comfort of tobacco and a bright fire for its growth. I lay against a corner of the stockade seat, listening to the wind whispering and to the ceaseless drip-drip of the trees. The night otherwise was very still and the sea quiet as a lake. I remember that I was conscious, peculiarly conscious, of this host of desolate islands crowding about us in the darkness, and that we were the one little spot of humanity in a rather wondrous kind of wilderness. But this, I think, was the only symptom that came to warn me of highly strung nerves, and it certainly was not sufficiently alarming to destroy my peace of mind. One thing, however, did come to disturb my peace for just as I finally made ready to go, and had kicked the embers of the fire into a last effort, I fancied I saw, peering at me round the farther end of the stockade wall, a dark and shadowy mass that might have been, that strongly resembled, in fact, the body of a large animal. Two glowing eyes shone for an instant in the middle of it. But the next second I saw that it was merely a projecting mass of moss and lichen in the wall of our stockade, and the eyes were a couple of wandering sparks from the dying ashes I had kicked. It was easy enough, too, to imagine I saw an animal moving here and there between the trees, as I picked my way stealthily to my tent. Of course, the shadows tricked me. And though it was after one o'clock, Maloney's light was still burning, for I saw his tent shining white among the pines. It was, however, in the short space between consciousness and sleep, that time when the body is low and the voices of the submerged region tell sometimes true, that the idea which had been all this while maturing reached the point of an actual decision, and I suddenly realized that I had resolved to send word to Dr. Silence. For with a sudden wonder that I had hitherto been so blind, the unwelcome conviction dawned upon me all at once that some dreadful thing was lurking about us on the island, and that the safety of at least one of us was threatened by something monstrous and unclean that was too horrible to contemplate. And again, remembering those last words of his as the train moved out of the platform, I understood that Dr. Silence would hold himself in readiness to come. Unless you should send for me sooner, he had said. I found myself suddenly wide awake. It is impossible to say what woke me, but it was no gradual process, seeing that I jumped from deep sleep to absolute alertness in a single instant. I had evidently slept for an hour or more, for the night had cleared, stars crowded in the sky, and a pallid half-moon just sinking into the sea through a spectral light between the trees. I went outside to sniff the air and stood upright, 
a curious impression that something was astir in the camp came over me, and when I glanced across at Sangree's tent, some twenty feet away, I saw that it was moving. He, too, then, was awake and restless, for I saw the canvas sides bulge this way and that as he moved within. The flap pushed forward. He was coming out, like myself, to sniff the air. And I was not surprised, for its sweetness after the rain was intoxicating. And he came on all fours, just as I had done. I saw a head thrust round the edge of his tent. And then I saw it was not Sangree at all. It was an animal. And the same instant, I realized something else, too. It was the animal, and its whole presentiment, for some unaccountable reason, was unutterably malefic. A cry I was quite unable to suppress escaped me, and the creature turned on the instant and stared at me with baleful eyes. I could have dropped on the spot, for the strength all ran out of my body with a rush. Something about it touched in me the living terror that grips and paralyzes. If the mind requires but the tenth of a second to form an impression, I must have stood there stock still for several seconds while I seized the ropes for support and stared. Many and vivid impressions flashed through my mind, but not one of them resulted in action, because I was in instant dread that the beast any moment would leap in my direction and be upon me. Instead, however, after what seemed a vast period, it slowly turned its eyes from my face, uttered a low whining sound, and came out altogether into the open. Then, for the first time, I saw it in its entirety and noted two things. It was about the size of a large dog, but at that same time it was utterly unlike any animal I had ever seen. Also, that the quality that had impressed me at first as being malefic was really only its singular and original strangeness. Foolish as it may sound, and impossible as it is for me to adduce proof, I can always say that the animal seemed to me to be not real. But all this passed through my mind in a flash, almost subconsciously, and before I had time to check my impressions, or even properly verify them, I made an involuntary movement, catching the tight rope in my hand so that it twanged like a banjo string, and in that instant the creature turned the corner of Sangree's tent and was gone into the darkness. Then, of course, my senses in some measure returned to me, and I realized only one thing. It had been inside his tent. I dashed out, reached the door in half a dozen strides, and looked in. The Canadian, thank God, lay upon his bed of branches. His arm was stretched outside across the blankets, the fist tightly clenched, and the body had an appearance of unusual rigidity that was alarming. On his face there was an expression of effort, almost of painful effort, so far as the uncertain light permitted me to see, and his sleep seemed to be very profound. He looked, I thought, so stiff, so unnaturally stiff, and in some indefinable way, too, he looked smaller, shrunken. I called to him to wake, but called many times in vain. Then I decided to shake him, and had already moved forward to do so vigorously when there came a sound of footsteps padding softly behind me, and I felt a stream of hot breath burn my neck as I stooped. I turned sharply. The tent door was darkened, and something silently swept in. I felt a rough and shaggy body push past me, and knew that the animal had returned. It seemed to leap forward between me and Sangree, in fact to leap upon Sangree, for his dark body hid him momentarily from view, and in that moment my soul turned sick and cowered with a horror that rose from the very dregs and depths of life, 
and gripped my existence at its central source. The creature seemed somehow to melt away into him, almost as though it belonged to him and were a part of himself, but in the same instant, that instant of extraordinary confusion and terror in my mind, it seemed to pass over and behind him, and in some utterly unaccountable fashion it was gone. And the Canadian woke and sat up with a start. Quick, you fool, I cried in my excitement. The beast has been in your tent, here at your very throat while you sleep like the dead. Up, man, get your gun. Only this second it disappeared over there behind your head. Quick, or Joan. And somehow the fact that he was there, wide awake now to corroborate me, brought the additional conviction to my own mind that this was no animal, but some perplexing and dreadful form of life that drew upon my deeper knowledge, that much reading had perhaps assented to, but that had never yet come within the actual range of my senses. He was up in a flash and out. He was trembling and very white. We searched hurriedly, feverishly, but found only the traces of paw marks passing from the door of his own tent across the moss to the women's, and the sight of the tracks about Mrs. Maloney's tent, where Joan now slept, set him in a perfect fury. "'Do you know what it is, Hubbard, this beast?' he hissed under his breath at me. "'It's a damned wolf, that's what it is. A wolf lost among the islands and starving to death, desperate. So help me God, I believe that's it.' He talked a lot of rubbish in his excitement. He declared that he would sleep by day and sit up every night until he killed it. Again his rage touched my admiration, but I got him away before he made enough noise to wake the whole camp. I have a better plan than that, I said, watching his face closely. I don't think this is anything we can deal with. I'm going to send for the only man I know who can help. We'll go to Waxholm this very morning and get a telegram through. Sangri looked at me with a curious expression, as the fury died out of his face and a new look of alarm took its place. John Silence, I said, will know. You think it's something of that sort, he stammered? I'm sure of it. There was a moment's pause. That's worse, far worse than anything material, he said, turning visibly paler. He looked from my face to the sky, and then added with sudden resolution. Come, the wind's rising. Let's get off at once. From there you can telephone to Stockholm and get a telegram sent without delay. I sent him down to get the boat ready, and seized the opportunity myself to run and wake Maloney. He was sleeping very lightly, and sprang up the moment I put my head inside his tent. I told him briefly what I had seen, and he showed so little surprise that I caught myself wondering for the first time whether he himself had seen more going on than he had deemed wise to communicate to the rest of us. He agreed to my plan without a moment's hesitation, and my last words to him were to let his wife and daughter think that the great psychic doctor was coming merely as a chance visitor, and not with any professional interest. So with frying pan, provisions, and blankets aboard, Sangree and I sailed out of the lagoon fifteen minutes later, and headed with a good breeze for the direction of Waxholm and the borders of civilization. End of Case 5 Camp of the Dog, Part 4